Hi folks, my name is Chris and I'm the artist and co-founder at Explorer Maps. My brother Greg and I produced our first map about 11 years ago, doing the map of Montana, and our list of maps has grown from one to our current tally of over 65. Which map will you get to help you treasure your own special times? Please be sure to use the promo code MANDELA for a discount when you visit explorermaps.com. Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure radio series and podcast dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from around the world in order to take you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. This episode was recorded on location in Zambia in collaboration with Game Rangers International. This project was made possible due to the generous contributions of Explorer Maps. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of adventure from both near and far, as well as information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can subscribe to the podcast and learn about our international outreach projects at traillesstraveled.net. And now, here's your host, international expedition guide, conservationist, and yogi, Mandela. Today we are sitting in a beautiful garden, Lusaka, Zambia, and I'm sitting with Rolf Shenton. He is a regenerative farmer, wildlife guide, and co-founder of the Grassroots Trust. Their intention is to develop and share regenerative management for agriculture. First and foremost, thank you so much for agreeing to share your story with me. Well, it's lovely to meet you, Mandela. We've been hearing all about you on your travels with Charlie. And, you know, it's a small town, so we hear about you, where you are, and my sister called me. Yes, yeah, I interviewed your sister as well. Yeah. So maybe I'll interview your whole family eventually. <laughs> Let's take it back. Let's take it back to your early years. So my first question for you is the evolution of Rolf as a regenerative farmer, you know, the, the clay from which you were shaped. So the child is, is nothing to do with farming. It's more to do with wildlife. My grandfather, First World War vet, and they were given a farm, and the tetsi fly came and the cattle all died of nagana which is a tetsi disease and so they gave him some cotton to grow and a cotton bowl came in the 20s and wiped out his cotton so eventually he got a job running in three little national parks in uh, zululand in south africa that's where our history of wildlife started my dad and his brother grew up shooting wildlife right the farmers didn't like wildlife so they thought it was bringing disease which it was. Probably the cattle were bringing the disease to the wildlife, but the wildlife survived. When they were young, they were just shooting wildlife every holiday. They would go out and just shoot as many as they could. I remember my uncle saying that these guns got so hot that he, he had to put it down and let it cool off a bit. And so the breakthrough came just at the end of the Second World War when my grandfather discovered DDT and rigged up some Martin's bombers and sprayed very carefully in the Tetsi areas and that solved the problem. Now the farmers were happy with the wildlife, there was no more Tetsi disease and so ironically the DDT, which we've grown up to hate, right, saved the wildlife. So that was my idea of how we started. And they came up here after the war with these two young boys and my uncle and my dad 
And after a couple of years of struggling in a piece of bush, my dad said, no, let me go and make some money. So he joined game department where a couple of their family friends were already. And he was a hunter, really, because he had learned to hunt. But he was in the wildlife department, the first wildlife department in the late 1950 he started. And they would hunt in the, off in the season. And then during the rains, they would do wildlife conservation and start building up the national parks and the game management, the hunting areas. And yeah, that's what they did. So for us, that was our life, you know. And that's why my mum married him, because he was this glamorous game ranger. His mates told me that he used to opt for six-week tours when everybody else was doing three-week tours, right? So he was out there in the villages helping people with their crop raiding elephants or man-eating lions or, you know, just general management things, discussing quotas for the next year's hunting season or whatever. And that's what he liked, you know. He used to walk from Petawuke to Mpika, which is... I tried it once. It's a long walk. It took me... <laughs> it took me a long time. It took me... Seven days, I think. Yeah, he'd do that in six weeks, though. So he was going really down on the ground, living with people, with a few carriers and a few scouts, but really just carrying salt as a, as a medium of exchange. People didn't have any need for cash, so it was very interesting stories. And recording every single thing they saw. They were so observant, those first rangers. It staggers me going through my dad's old records and just reading the detail that they recorded, every single animal, every grass, that was all new to Europeans. Mm -hmm. It had never been recorded by anybody. And these guys wrote all the books in a matter of you know, 20 years. Incredible stuff. One guy in, in town here putting all these reports together and putting him on a map and then working out what the populations were in each area. Just incredible work. Great respect for that. Eventually, 20 years later, by then it was like independence and people wanted to have their country back and they didn't want people like my dad there. So he went farming and he loved it. He just loved it, you know. He was back into the bush and uh, eventually he got his own farm in the early 80s and I left university to help him to establish this. It was a family, you know, with three kids in school, my siblings, and we wanted to get this thing going. So that was fun. But now how to do that, right? So this is where the, <laughs> the, the, the rubber hit the tar because how are we going to farm? Are we going to get any lessons from this history of two generations in the bush or are we going to do a reductionist farming? My dad and I eventually fought too much and we couldn't work together, so I left. Mm -hmm. Because he said, I've got school fees to pay and I can't afford to experiment with organic and you know we've got to use fertilizer everybody's doing that I can't relearn it was a fundamental issue it was an existential issue because he was a conservationist and here he was nuking the soil with herbicides and pesticides and every side you could think of and you know pouring fertilizer on there which clearly was making the soil I mean we bought this old farm and it was like a big lake when it rained the water wouldn't go down so I knew that something was wrong. The soil was really damaged. We did over 25 years. I mean, obviously, I didn't work there for very long with him. I spent about three, four years with him until we could no longer live together. <laughs> but, we, you know, we've always been in touch and we've always been part of the family farm. If it's planting time, we all go back and help. So over 25 years, we did manage to restore the soil a bit by doing some basic stuff, rotation, 
with legumes, soybeans, maize, adding some other stuff in once in a while, leaving parts of the farm to regrow and get a bit more bush. And it was a good thing. But what was interesting for me is then I got elected as a representative in the parliament, right? And I was only 27, so suddenly I was in charge of like 107,000 people, I think, in terms of their future, their life, their everything, their agriculture policy, their clinics, their schools, their roads. Their, I was their mother, their father, their uncle, everything. It was terrible. It was the worst thing that's ever happened to me. <laughs> and suddenly I had to sharpen up and say, right, this is reality. You know, here are people that don't have title deeds, that got no not much school there's about I think the average farmer here has about four years of school so even the basic things that we took for granted that I could come out of school and help set the planter because I knew how the thing was set up and could get the right amount of fertilizer on with the fertilizer spreader and things like that it would be tricky if you've only got four years of school so we had to start really rethinking this or I did and it started me on a journey to think about, okay, how can we do it for the Zambian context, which is pretty much most of Africa's context and probably half of Asia and I found out, you know, a lot of South America and really majority of the world are in this context. And as I sort of try to solve their immediate problems, I started realizing that they have a lot more wisdom than, than I've ever imagined, right? They knew about trees and they knew about soils and they knew about communities and collective management and all sort of things that I hadn't really thought about. I thought it was just a matter of getting the fertilizer on time and getting the right seed and you'd be fine. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't. So I've been on a huge learning curve. Uh, yeah. Rolf, I actually sat down with your sister the other day been going around Zambia documenting stories from the front lines of conservation and I talked to your sister mainly to really kind of get the aspect of the history of conservation in this part of the world. And so I was hoping that you could reflect a little bit more on that before we dive deep into regenerative farming. Yeah. So your father, Barry Shenton, he was one of a team who helped develop conservation in this country. Well, develop modern conservation. What's become apparent to me is the arrogance of colonialism. <laughs> it didn't notice that there was actually a really good management here. I mean, if, if you do believe in evolution, which not everybody does, but I do, and, you know, so people left Africa and became Europeans and Indians and Chinese. But basically our mentality was to eat our way through the resources, right? If you go to Europe, just about every tree there is a planted tree. It's not being managed. There's no indigenous forest. I searched Sweden for indigenous old forest. Really tricky to find. Same with Germany. There's a little bit in Poland, and, and I never quite got there, but I'd love to imagine what it was like. What drew people up to these cold places? Vast herds of wildlife, vast diversity of resources, and you just don't see it anymore. So basically, we come back to Africa after 40,000 years, mm -hmm. and we find the place still intact, pretty much intact, right? Huge herds of wildlife, huge forests, diversity like you've never seen. I mean, our forests here... I think it's got 8,500 species, according to WWF. That's a huge amount of diversity just on plants. Only 300 of those are deep-rooted trees, right? The rest are shallow-rooted plants, which, well, now we just sort of burn them. But all these were part of the economy and the so-called conservation. They were managed. That was life for people here. And so I've come to respect the traditional system much more than I ever dreamt I would. 
because I realized what a huge mistake it's been for colonials to impose arrogant, top-down, reductionist management. And so that includes the national parks, which my dad helped create, right? I think they're wrong. By excluding parts of the country and saying to people, that's where you're not allowed to hunt, it basically meant that you could hunt the hell out of and cut all the trees in the rest of the country. So protected areas, for me, are actually a problem now. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Let's talk about conservation on the African continent before colonialism. What were some of the practices? Well, I don't think there was such a concept as conservation, but everybody lived their life. You know, I've imagined and I've talked to a lot of chiefs, traditional people here, traditional leaders, about how their people came. And it would be one strong man coming out of Congo or coming from South Africa or somewhere and settling on a nice piece of land. And then, you know, he'd need people to manage this land. People would come and say they need somewhere to settle. So he'd say, okay, go and settle there. But the deal is, the deal is, this is my land. And on my land, you got to make sure there's no damage to the trees, that when you catch fish, you catch them so that there'll be fish for tomorrow. And when you hunt, you hunt in a way that you only hunt males, you only hunt mature animals, and of an edible species. We don't eat hyenas here, you know. So there were some, a lot of rules, and those rules evolved into what we call Malamulo in the east, or Milau in the south and the west, or Amafundi in the north. These are, this is the rule system, or the management system, I like to think about it as. And it's very integrated. If you got married and you needed to build a house for your wife, you'd have to go down to the headman, to the Nduna, and say, you know, sir, I've got a problem, you know. And, uh, you know, our people are very polite here and they take hours. And I've got married and I need a house and I need to, I need to go and cut some poles and get some grass and, and, and build a house. And you'd say, can I cut them over here near, near my dad's place? And he'd say, no, no, those aren't ready yet. You have to go over there. Oh, that's miles away. Well, those are the ones that are ready. They were micromanaging the forest. Mm. An old guy told me in, in Sananga once that uh, if a guy wanted to go fishing on the Zambezi River, and it was a big business, and he wanted to make a boat, you know, again, same thing. He'd say, oh, there's a tree that's, you know, nice and big. Can I cut it down? But he'd always ask. Every decision was made within some kind of authoritarian structure. And so there was a respect for the authority, and the authority had a respect for the one above him. So basically everything belonged to the king, or the Lutunga. Lutunga means land. So his main responsibility means looking after the land. And so every decision had to be made. And if you broke the rules, the one guy told me that if you killed a hippo in the river, because the hippo were valued for their role in opening up the channels and keeping the fish, the water moving and the fish flowing, and if you killed one illegally, you'd have to dry it and carry it to the king. Now, he may be 150 kilometers away. It'd take you a year. Yeah. So that was a huge punishment. Nobody ever did that. So I think there were obviously much more subtlety into this thing. I mean, there was spiritualism to protect areas. They used this final power, which was what people call witchcraft now, but it's, you know... As, as a conservation tool to protect certain areas where you weren't allowed to cut trees or not allowed to go. So, yeah, I think that we lost a genius there. There's a genius in that, an evolved genius. And my excitement was then to find, eventually, some way of rebuilding this in a logical way, which is holistic management. 
right? Alan Savory, he poo-poos me because I'm always raving about the village system. <laughs> and he says, no, it was still reductionist, you know, it was still slowly destroying the world. They say, yeah, okay, maybe, but they recognize the need to move their cattle in a seasonal way, migration, grazing. They knew if they stayed in one place, the disease would build up and the cattle would die. So without dip, without vaccines, without any kind of modern veterinary tools or any antibiotics, people had many more cattle than they have today in amongst huge herds of wildlife, right? Just down here on the Kafui Flats, not far from where we're sitting, is the big Kafui floodplain. And every year that would flood and ebb and flow. And it's big. It's like 6,000 square kilometers of periodic big river that comes down and floods. So magnificent vegetation, no trees, just grassland. Rich grazing, I mean, you can imagine. So there were between three and nine million wildlife on there. Okay, some of the estimates from the first European hunters were nine million wildlife. So let's take the bottom one, three million, plus a million cattle, estimated by the first district administrator in 1902 and the first priest. They collaborated and worked out there must have been four million animals on there at least. Now, four million animals in 6,000 square kilometers, that's a high density of animals by any standards. So, you know, it always made me think about the Midwest where you had these, I don't know, it was 50 million bison running across America and keeping that grassland going. And I've understood that that was the wave and flow of everything. That designed the grass, the way people lived, everything. And when that was cut off, the whole system collapsed. So I don't think people shot the wildlife out. I don't think it died because of humans hunting too much. I think it died because it couldn't move anymore, right? And I've talked to some Americans who are beginning to work it out, that if you had that many army people trying to kill all your buffalo to starve the Indians, you would have only physically been able to kill a tenth of them. The rest died because they died of starvation. They couldn't keep the grasslands alive. And so that's really become fixed in my head, that you've got to have these big herds of hooved ungulates going over this land to keep it alive, to keep the soil alive, to stop the fire burning, because, you know, if there's too much biomass, it's going to burn. Some crazy guy's always got matches. These days, it's even easier. In the traditional times, it was really... My dad explained, and Norman Carr, who I worked with quite a lot as well, an old hunter guy, they assured me that only the headman was allowed to burn. And now it's got so extreme that, you know, after independence, people were happy to get out of these very fixed rules. And now every kid walking to school is throwing matches out. It's like pyromaniac Mm -hmm. has taken over here. And so instead of all that grass becoming food and manure and meat, it's become fuel for fire, which is driving climate change. I mean, it's going to make it hotter. Fire and water don't mix. It's going to get drier. To me, a lot of our problems here are nothing but our own making which gives me hope. We can fix it. So, Rolf, this is a radio show, podcast. The people listening, they don't know where we are, what it smells like, what it looks like, what it feels like. So I'm just wondering if you might be willing to look around and describe to the listener, paint the picture where we are right now. All right. Well, I lived on a farm and I got married and my wife didn't like it. (laughs) So she came to live with her parents here in town and this is their little land. Yeah, if I wanted to see my kids, I had to follow her. So I... I came and made this my base, and so for quite a long time we've been living here. But yeah, we just let the trees grow. It, it's an unmanaged garden. It's a lot of 
well, as many as indigenous trees as we can. Granny and Grandpa used to like the foreign stuff, but slowly we're getting all the indigenous back. It's not us planting now, it's the birds. There's just so many birds. Look at them. There's a paradise flycatcher up there with a long copper tail. Can you see him? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's lots of those calling all day. That's his little call. And there's uh, sunbirds, some hawks that come around, and it's quiet. It's it's only a kilometer from the main road, but it's quiet. We like it. It's cool. It's a practical place. Lusaka's in the center of, pretty much in the center of Zambia, and so it's easy for me to go in any direction I need to go to visit farmers, work with communities. When I say farmers, it's the broader sense of farming, right? It means maybe farming wildlife, farming forest, farming all sorts of mushrooms in the forest or fish in the river. So for me, farming means a much broader thing than growing maize and soybeans in the Midwest. (laughs) Can we talk about your life as a wildlife guide? When I grew up, a lot of my elders, the guys who I admired, were going off and working a season in the National Park or two. It just seemed such a cool job, you know, driving around a Land Rover. And you'd have to bring your own car. So it was always really broken down cars. I mean, it was the young guys who maybe scrounged an old Land Rover off their dad at the farm and fixed it up. I remember one guy couldn't do left turns, so he could only go straight or right, okay? So, <laughs> so every time he got to a left turn, he'd have to do, go right, find a way through all the trees and come eventually and go straight, you know, and end up going left. So Rolf, that was a Land Rover, right? That was a Land Rover. You know them. And they of keep course, coming up. They keep coming up in every interview we do. Yeah, so first thing I learned is mechanics, right? How to fix these things so that they can go left and right, right? I mean, it was ridiculous. It's just to, it's just to reset the pinion on the steering. But anyway, such was the game. And so when my mum... You know, when I'm growing up, and my mum's saying, what are you going to do? I say, oh, it's gonna, let me just go and work in the National... No, 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 no. You've got to go to college. You've got to become an engineer or something useful. You can't be a... Yeah, they did drink a little, and it seemed an irresponsible lifestyle to be a guide. <laughs> so I was banished from that. <laughs> we've got a table of guides here, so... Yeah, I know. Uh, well, I'm sure we've all <laughs> somehow snuck away from our parental role. Anyway, so then I said, all right, well, look, the way I see it, is dad needs help at the farm. So I started university, but I wasn't really interested in it. It really was boring. So let me go and help him. And then in the off-season, I said, gee, Norman's down there trying to get this safari going. Let me just go and help him, and I'll be back, you know, a couple of months, and I'll go to college. And that's how it kind of evolved. So I, I became a guide long before there were licenses or anything like that. And then one day, I think partly me and a couple of mates had said, look, we can't just be these temporary people here we want permanent jobs as guides so we need proper qualifications we can't be competing with unqualified people from all over the world coming in just for a season we want to be professionals so they said all right we'll get a license and I did sit my license and I just walked that route which I told you about with my dad walked across the valley across the Luangwa so I remember the three interrogators they asked me, how did you get here? And I said, I walked. They said, where did you walk from? I said, from the escarpment. How long did it take you? I don't know, about three days, four days. Did you walk through the National Park? Uh, yeah, I did, yeah. Do you know that's illegal? I said, yeah, I do, I do. But it was the shortest way. I couldn't have managed the other way. It's very dry. Okay, so uh, 
well, you survive. So you can have your practical, you can pass your practical, right? <laughs> you obviously know what you're doing in the bush. And then they asked me some trick questions. What's a rhinorium? What the hell's a rhinorium, man? <laughs> I said, well, maybe where you keep rhinos? <laughs> My dad had been involved in the capture of rhinos, and I thought this was some trick question. Well, it's not. It's actually the soft part of the muzzle of a horse, right? You didn't know that. I didn't know. I, I didn't know that. So I failed this exam. <laughs> so I failed the practical. Well, they passed me on both because they knew I'd know. So I, I got away lightly, but I know that the guides these days have to really sweat it out over volumes of history. And we had to know 100 birds and 50 trees to qualify to work there. But it, it really is rigorous now, and the, the guides are fantastic. Mm -hmm. They really are. And people pay for guides now. I mean, you pay a lot of money to come here. I think we were on cheap safaris then. We were so grateful if somebody could actually make it all the way to the Luangwa Valley in those days. Yeah. Now it's a big business, and it's, uh, it's very professional. Rolf, a couple of times you mentioned someone named Norman Carr. Yeah. So for people listening in Zambia, they maybe know who he is, but can you tell us about Norman Carr and what he was known for? And you worked with him, hey? I worked with him. My dad worked for him in the early 50s. Norman was uh, born in Mozambique, actually, at the delta of the Zambezi, at Kiruman, and uh, grew up there, went to school in England, came back and lived in Malawi, but always loved hunting and used to sneak across to Zambia there weren't too many borders then and take as many elephants as he could out of the Luangwa Valley and then he sort of realized in the 30s that this is not good this is going to finish and that they need to start doing something so he became an elephant control officer and that was the most that the government had back then everybody felt that the big money in this part of the world was ivory and so everybody was shooting as much ivory as they could and so it wasn't the first generation either. It was the Tipu Tip and people like that before. There was a guy called Matakenya at the confluence of the Luangwa and thing in the 1800s. And he ran slaves and he ran all sorts of things. But his big thing was going on a three-year hunting safari up in Luangwa uh, with 3,000 people. I mean, these things were... There must have been vast, vast herds of wildlife here before the Arabs came, before the Europeans came, and just started slaughtering. So... Elephant control officer was the first thing Norman became. And then uh, later on, he joined the first game department in 1948, I think, the formal proper game department. And my dad joined in 1950 as a young guy, and Norman took him under his wing to some extent and showed him the ropes. Our families have been friends ever since, and uh, we've had a lot to learn from them. They really, Norman was a fantastic guy. He's written five books, I think, and... He was really an experienced guy at a hard time in the war, in the, in the North African battles with Rommel, and, man, the guy had some experience. But he didn't know how to fix things, and we did, so we've always been close to them. I've actually heard that part of the reason walking safari started was because of three broken-down Land Rovers. Is that true? <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> Absolutely no doubt. They're hopeless. Can't fix a <laughs> bottle top opener. Yeah. We've always been a practical family, and there's brilliant families, academic families around, and you always kind of work together because you need each other. Norman really had some visions, and he was the one that really guided the first Zambian government into a policy to steer away from just the big opportunity from East Africa, the big numbers, mm -hmm. keep it small, make it small and exclusive and expensive. That fits in, in our environment better, and Norman's the one that visualized that and pushed it and that's what we have now we don't have huge crowds i say crowds i see crowds of 
20, 30 vehicles around a lion in East Africa, and I, we just would not have that. So luckily, he's the guy who visualized all this. And also hunting safaris, which extended the protected areas. I mean, it's much bigger than the national parks. It's massive. The hunting areas are huge. There's no way tourism could handle that sort of area, but it's made all those areas into buffer wildlife areas where communities are able to live with wildlife as they did when they lived in the national park, but they have some ownership now, they have some control. And this is also something that Norman and me later on, I took it up because it was community-based natural resource management. Right? So how to get it back from centralized government which it was for about 15 years only, and the wildlife collapsed. I mean, we lost 200,000 elephants in that period, and all the rhino, basically. From the time when traditional managers were taken out of the decision-making, when Lusaka made all the decisions, during the real socialist period in the early 70s. So for 15 years, all decisions were made by big people sitting in offices in Lusaka. And the locals just said, well, hell that, we're not going to live with these wildlife and be told how to manage them, then they just slaughtered them. And then it became corruption, and then the corruption went upwards. And we lost 200,000 elephants. And it was dreadful. I mean, that's how I actually ended up working as a guide. I finally persuaded my mum that if I didn't go this year, there would be no wildlife, so let me just go and do one season. And then I was in, of course. <laughs> Never went back to school. <laughs> Hi folks, my name is Chris and I'm the artist and co-founder at Explorer Maps. My brother Greg and I produced our first map about 11 years ago, doing the map of Montana, and our list of maps has grown from one to our current tally of over 65. I've been drawing and painting for a long, long time, starting as an advertising illustrator in the 80s, back in Canada, to exhibiting wildlife and landscape oil paintings in East Africa through the 1990s. But I find that what I'm doing now with Explorer is the most rewarding project I've ever been involved with, mostly because it's a family business and helping to grow that business gives me a real sense of purpose. We've even got our daughter Becca in on the action, making short documentaries and videos. She's just done one of Costa Rica. And my wife Ness will be finding new markets for our Explorer products when we move back to Kenya in the summer. So that'll be great fun. On the topic of connecting people in place, Hopefully these maps bring back memories of great holidays and fun with family and friends. And it makes people want to get out there and connect or reconnect with these places. Do I have a favorite map? I definitely do not have a favorite map. They're all my favorites because they're like my children. I love them all equally. How's that for a diplomatic answer? Anyway, thanks for listening. Hi, this is Vanessa, Chris's wife. Which map will you get to help you treasure your own special times? Please be sure to use the promo code MANDELA for a discount when you visit explorermaps.com. Rolf, let's <coughs> jump into your work with the Grassroots Trust and what you share with farmers regarding regenerative management for agriculture. The trust was formed just out of necessity. We needed a vehicle to really get out there and do what we love doing, is thinking about how to get everything grown again, how to make it profitable enough so that people stay on the land and don't migrate to the city where they just live in these big shanty compounds and it's just horrible. It's just a horrible way of life. It's horrible for everything, for the economy. These are not people that are easily to employ in the big factories. There are no factories anyway, and it's just a terrible model. 
I saw this happening in other countries over the centuries. You know, we've seen almost every society's lost all its small farmers, big farmers replace them, and everybody moves to these big cities and twiddles their thumbs wondering what the hell to do for a living. You know, so that's not a good model. So I thought, well, let, let's try and do the other thing. Let's, we're going to run out of oil in my lifetime, probably, or cheap oil, so that model's not going to fly anymore. We've also got major problems with the environment. We, you know, we're feeling it here. We're on the edge of human habitable environment. You know, the Kalahari Desert is just there. Namibia is a bit big desert. The Kalahari rushes in every couple of millennia, right? And I don't want to see that. That's horrible. People are going to die. It's going to be really hard to live. Mm-hmm. So we started looking at that context and we started thinking about how we can keep people on the land, help them make more profit. They don't have any access to loans. They've got plenty of land, but they don't have this sort of modern idea of ownership. So very hard for them to borrow money. To put any kind of collateral down is impossible. So we're trying to work out how we can build a community thing within their context, help them farm without the need for buying big fertilizers and chemicals and machinery. We hooked up with a guy called Sebastian Scott, who's like me he just driven to have this thing sorted so he got a little piece of land 22 years ago and he's sat there and just worked out how to get it producing with nothing he's never bought any fertilizer chemicals or he's got no machines that does everything he's he's like a gym guy he just goes up and down weeding and he's amazing but he's cracked it he's got the highest yields in zambia he's probably got the highest yields in the region but he's never used anything like it's a circular farm it's all integrating mixed cropping so I always ask people, okay, where do you start? Who's the best farmer? And everybody looks at each other and they're all trying to work out who, what I mean. And eventually somebody says, God. And I say, yeah, it's nature, Mother Nature. That's what's made this planet grow from a desert into a jungle. 8,500 plants, as I said earlier. It's a, and 243 species of wildlife, visible ones, and then millions in the soil. We just discovered that, you know, this sort of soil biome is incredible. It's very exciting. It's all new knowledge. What is it? Seven billion individual bacteria in a spoonful of soil, of healthy soil. Well, I can show you soil that's so dead, it doesn't have any life in, doesn't smell, it has got no color, it runs like water. We don't want that sand, we don't want the desert. So the journey between biodiversity loss to desertification and climate change as all that carbon goes up into the air is so simple for me. And I cannot understand why the world would separate desertification and biodiversity loss and climate change. It's all one problem. So Savory makes a lot of sense to me, Alan Savory. He was a ranger in the 50s as well. He He was a biologist up in northern province of Zambia. And he kept wondering why the buffalo never finished the grass. And he got the first idea into our family anyway about regeneration. And we forgot about him for a while until he became a bestseller. And now he's a bestseller. He's the only guy that I know who can say, right, we're going to fix this piece of desert here, going to turn it into more plants, more animals, healthier soil, more water. We can bring the water back because if the soil's healthy, it'll go into the soil where it falls. It won't run off. And so we got really excited about all of this. And that's what we do. We just go out there and tell this story, help people to improve their yields, improve their resilience, reduce their costs and improve their diversity and in in all of that we've also got to do some business because people here don't know too much about doing business they're so nice they just give everything away so (laughs) you've got to tell them okay well you've got to add up your costs and so we do a bit of profit and loss and just generally help people who are not ideally prepared for this modern world 
and you know a lot of governments and a lot of policy makers would have us get rid of all these small scale farmers as they've done in many other countries and put big corporate farms everywhere and grow monocultures of high input stuff and make the big corporates rich well that's not our idea of the future we see a future like the UN does with small scale farmers are able to deal with complexity much better plant five, ten crops at once in the same field you try and weed that on a mechanized system it's impossible you've got to do it by hand that's the only way to deal with complexity and to harvest five or ten crops out of the same field with all maturing different times only humans can do that so I do think that post-fossil fuel, which by the look of the wars at the moment, it could be quite soon, mm-hmm. it's going to be small-scale farmers. And so we have to look at the infrastructure that needs to be built around that. So it's markets, it's aggregation, it's channels of value addition, and, and all suited to small-scale farmers. Mm-hmm. And at the moment, we're on a hiding to nothing. The, the governments all want to become like America, but you know, we see Americans, a lot of our friends in America also want that future. So. You know, it's a growing movement around the world of regenerative people who are realizing that only the soil can set us free here, really. I wish I could tell the Palestinians and the Israelis that. <laughs> Let's talk about some of the principles of regenerative farming. Speaking to somebody who is curious about getting away from fertilizer, rotating crops, yeah. uh, using cattle, you know, yeah. all of this. Well, again, we go back to Mother Nature, right? Best farmer. What do you find in the forest? Lots of big plants, lots of small plants, lots of deep-rooted. A lot of diversity, a lot of... Every time there's a grass, there's a legume. Because the grass is a high high feeder, especially nitrogen. One of the biggest things that Sebastian has cracked is how to manage nitrogen in this environment, which, you know, nitrogen loves going back into the air because it's 78% in the air, and it's just dying to get back out of your soil, out of your crops, out of your everything out of your manure into the air. So you've got to manage it. You've got to keep it there in the soil, in the manure, in the thing. So that's where we've made a huge breakthrough, I think, in managing that manure. Some ideas have come from traditional ideas. There's been a, a big colonization of management. The, the management I was telling you before, this sort of genius of traditional management, a lot of it has been pushed aside and the superior European management has come in. Right? So that's what everybody's trying to do now. And I'm we're at pains to tell people, look, man, if you've got indigenous plants, indigenous adapted animals, these are the most suitable for this environment. That's why they're still alive. So don't try and big, big frame cows from Europe where it's wet and virgin all, all year round. It's a feast food forest over there because it rains all the time. It's always green. There's plenty of grass. But here it's hot and dry for seven months a year. And then it just rains a bit. So your animals have to be real clever at picking out the nutrients and surviving without water. And that goes for wildlife. So I think that uh, you know, if it does get hotter and drier, we're going to need the indigenous wildlife even more. If the cattle die, even the indigenous cattle might die if it gets too hot. We may be farming buffalo or impala. And that's how I justify wildlife. I love wildlife. But uh, that's a good way to, you know, to tell people that in 20, 30 years' time. Maybe those will be the only things that survive. I've seen impala in Namibia there. They don't even have water. They just get the moisture they need from the leaves. You know, adapted plants and animals, it's again, the best farmer uses that. So diversity, periodic impact of big herds of animals, that's basically how you got to farm here. Mm-hmm. 
and maybe everywhere. I'm sure the Midwest would benefit from a big herd of 50 million buffalo passing through it every year. <laughs> Sometimes the hardest part is that first step. So what would you say is the first step for a farmer listening to get on to regenerative farming? For me, it's become clear that the first step is to remove the arrogance of man. You know, we have the very strong belief that we're more clever than anybody else around here. So I think for us, it's humility, right? Just to admit that, okay, I'm down. My, my goats have eaten so much plastic because everybody's throwing plastic around. They, their guts are full of plastic. They can't eat anymore. They died. The fire, because every kid's got a box of matches, has taken all my ground cover away. It's eaten all the grass and now my animals are starving and there's no water and I'm on my last leg. So are we in a position where we can actually listen to the best farmer, Mother Nature? And I think that's what it is, is to get people to really recognize how it was when they were young. When I was young, there were big herds of animals running around just about the whole country here. There were big plants, big animals. And now, you know, we're sprinting towards desert, really. <laughs> We've got to be humble enough to recognize that we've been messing up and that we need to do something about it. And there's a lot of people around the world who've just done amazing work. I mean, we talked to Andriello in uh, Mexico, and he's just turned this desert into a food forest. It's incredible what he's done with nothing, with about a tenth of the rainfall we have. We're starving in abundance. They all laugh at us when they come here. They say, oh, what are you worrying about? Cranky, you've got healthy soils, you've got diversity, you've got everything. Cranky. If they can do it, we can easily do it. But we've got to be humble enough to listen. The most important thing is to recognize that the plants and animals are the things that are going to save us. More plants per square meter means more healthy soil and more water going into the ground. And all this climate change nonsense about floods and droughts, that's not climate change. That's bad management of soil. And that a lot of the problems that are really overwhelming the world right now change. It's a symptom. Deal with the root cause. As Alan Savory has taught us, address biodiversity loss. And you can forget about desertification and thing, and you're gonna make more money, you have more resilience, and the future is bright. Beautiful. Thank you so much for your time and energy. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Such a pleasure to talk to you guys. Yeah, let's get you to the airport. What song would you like to end your show with? It's called Bush Territory by Cactus Agony. Aka Amfri Mwila. His dad was the Minister of Defence with me when I was in Parliament. And I've got to know this son. And he's just the most prolific, energetic artist that we have in Zambia. And he's connected to the bush. We did Mama Zambia together. If you look on YouTube for Mama Zambia, you're going to see a beautiful song with my daughter and Cactus in Zambia. We put this song together for the environment. I go to Cactus as often as I can just to get that energy. He loves the environment. And Bush Territory, you can find it on YouTube. Great song. So far, how are you feeling, how are you feeling now? Yeah. It's all about your roots and culture. You got to know your history to know who you are. Roots and culture. It's part of your identity, it's who you really are, miss it. Roots and culture. You got to know your history to know who you are. Roots and culture. It's part of your identity. Let me know. This is Bush territory where the Lion King roams. Place that I call my home. 
Hope you hear my song so when you come to Africa you can't turn around and say you didn't know. Bush territory where the Lion King roams is the place that I call my place I call my home. So when you come to Africa you can't turn around and say him now. Well, I say bangoodly bangos, a village bongo drum. That's how you know that now you're walking in the land of Africa. Makes the words come out my mind as like stampeding elephants. And I create a shockwave like earthquake vibration. Sending Zambia music tidal waves across the ocean to let them know that I can eat a bit like Megaton. But don't underestimate what I can do because I'm an African. Africa's the place that first mathematicians came from. Same place where Hollywood came in search of King Kong. And them create their big fantasy about Tarzan. But this is Bush Terry, where the lions can roam. Place that I call my home. Hope you hear my song. So when you come to Africa, you can't turn around. You can't turn around and say you didn't know. Where the lion king roams is the place that I call my home. Hope you hear my song. So when you come to Africa, you can't turn around. One drum. You name the waterfall Victoria with David Livingston, but tell me what the Queen of England got to do with this lion. Return the man from Broken Hill, you know where he belongs. Around the fire in the night, we beat the drums and sing some. Smell like ganja, herb, aroma coming from the Rasta campus. They prepare for the dawning of a revolution. The time is gonna come when you must know your position. You must repatriate yourself just like the prodigal son. There is a place for you right here under the tropical sun. Can't believe some didn't know until the tropical sun that this is bush territory where the lion king roams. It's the place that I call my home. Hope you hear my song so when you come to Africa you can't turn around and say, can't turn around and say you didn't know. Where the lion king roams is the place that I call my place, I call my home. So when you come to Africa you give me a mix. Yo! You name the waterfall Victoria with David Livingston, but tell me what the Queen of England got to do with where I'm from. Return the man from Broken Hill, you know where he belongs around the fire in the night. We beat the drums and sing some. Smell like ganja, a aroma coming from the Rasta campus. They prepare for the dawning of a revolution. The time is gonna come when you must know your position. You must repatriate yourself just like the prodigals. There is a place for you right here under the tropical sun. Can't believe some didn't know until the tropical sun that this is bush territory where the lion king place I call my home. Hope you hear my song so when you come to Africa you can't turn around. You can't turn around and say you didn't know. Where the Lion King goes is the place that I call my Place I call my home. So when you give me a one drop one more time. Was once Rhodesia, but now independence since 1964. My people never get amendment. We're freed from the slavery and the shackles of men, so we should never have to suffer from no master again. But when your captor sells away to live and rob another day, it's up to the old to teach the young about man like Cecil Rhodes. Cause not for them in this millennium, they don't know. You hear the sound of the conquering lion, then the thunder of the great wildebeest migration, then the Mosotunia sends a great vibration, and everywhere you feel the spirit of the Zambian nation it come from Bush Terry where the Lion King roams place that I call my home hope you hear my song so when you come to Africa you can't turn around and say you didn't turn around and say you didn't know where the Lion King roams hope you hear my song so when you come to Africa you can't sit down sit down sit down sit down Everybody ready to jump with me? Come on, mix it, mix me. Roots and culture. You got to know your history to know who you are. 
Roots and culture is part of your identity. It's who you really are. Roots and culture. You got to know your history to know who you are. Roots and culture is part of your identity. It's who you really are. All that I want to say is that I was born a Bantu. Hey, hey, in a bush territory where me stay hey, with the sunshine each and every day. Hey, all that I want to say hey, is that I was born a Bantu. And say hey, in a bush territory where me stay hey, with the sunshine each and every All that I want to say hey, is that I was born a Bantu. And say hey, in a bush territory where me stay hey, with the sunshine each and every So far sound, can you hear me? I, yeah, sounds from a room. But a bang, bang, bang. So I say, so I say, Bush territory where the Lion King roams. It's the place that I call my home. Oh, yeah, my song. So when you come to Africa, you can't turn around and say you didn't know. Namaste, Missoula, and my friends around the world. Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled. The Trail Less Traveled premieres every Sunday night at 6 Mountain Time, and you can stream it live online at trail1033.com. If you missed the premiere of the radio version of the show, remember it is also a podcast, available everywhere. You can learn more and follow as we record on location around the world by visiting traillesstraveled.net. I want to take a moment to thank Explorer Maps for their generous support of my most recent project in Zambia. Explorer Maps is a small family business with roots in Montana and in Africa. I am working with Explorer Maps in order to connect people and place. And we are doing this through podcasts, live storytelling, community events, and various approaches to multimedia. You can learn more by visiting explorermaps.com. That's it for this week, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week, please remember, conservation is not a spectator sport. Living in Missoula is a privilege. With privilege comes responsibility. Please get informed and get engaged. Speak up on behalf of wildlife and wild places. <laughs>